Amen. All right, well, we're there in Esther chapter number four. And of course, on Sunday mornings, we are continuing to go through our uh, series through the book of Esther entitled For Such a Time as This. And uh, I'd like you to notice there in verse number one, uh, just kind of by way of introduction, I'll give you a quick outline of what's happening here in this uh, chapter. And if you remember, uh, the Jews have made an enemy of themselves, specifically Mordecai, who raised Esther, has made an enemy of himself by the second most powerful man in the kingdom by the name of Haman. And Haman has decided to uh, have genocide, basically, to kill all the Jews. And uh, he's planning on doing this. Mordecai gets the news. Of course, the Jews get the news of this. And what we find in this chapter, Esther chapter 4, is a conversation between Mordecai and Esther. A conversation about what they are to do and what they should do and trying to motivate Esther to do what she needs to do. And if you notice here in verse number one, we find the result of Haman's decree. We see that Mordecai is in mourning. Verse one says this, that when Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes. And of course, it's something that would be done at a time of mourning in the Old Testament, especially the Old Testament nation of Israel, and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud, bitter cry. Notice verse 2, and Mordecai is, is what we're talking about, came even before the king's gate. Notice, for none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. So here we have Mordecai in public mourning. He has, clothed, he has rent his clothes. He has put on sackcloth and ashes. And then he does something that nobody's supposed to do. He goes to the king's gate. And the Bible says, for none might enter into the king's uh, gate clothed with sackcloth. Now, you don't have to turn here. But in Nehemiah chapter number 2, and Nehemiah, if you remember, was in the same kingdom as Esther, the Medo-Persian Empire, different king at a different time. But Nehemiah chapter 2 says this. I'll just read this for you. This is once Nehemiah got the news about Jerusalem being destroyed. It says, And it came to pass in the month Nisan, in the twentieth year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Remember, Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer. Here's what the Bible says in Nehemiah. It says, Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then, then the Bible says, Nehemiah says, Then I was very sore afraid. So the Bible seems to indicate that in this Medo-Persian empire, you were not allowed to be sad or in mourning in the presence of the king. The, they wanted everybody always to be happy. And he, of course, we know that from uh, King Ahasuerus. He's always throwing a party or having a party and always uh, trying to have a, a good time. And what Mordecai does is he's kind of forcing the hand. He's doing something thing that's not normally done, and he's uh, mourning in ashes and sackcloth at the king's gate. Notice it's not only Mordecai who's doing this, but also the Jews are in mourning. Look at verse 3, Esther chapter 4, verse 3. And in every providence, uh, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews, and fasting, and weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. And I want you to notice, not only do we see the result of Haman's decree, and this is just by way of introduction, we see the request of Mordecai. Notice verse 4. So Esther's maid and her chamberlains came and told it her. Then was the queen exceedingly grieved. She gets the news that Mordecai is out there at the king's gate, 
with his clothes rent, with his, uh, with, with, in ashes and sackcloth. And the Bible says that the queen was exceedingly grieved, and she sent raiment to clothe Mordecai and to take away his sackcloth from him, but he received it not. She tried to cover it up. She tried to cover him up, but he would not receive it. Notice verse 5. Then called Esther for Hatak, one of the king's chamberlains, uh, whom he had appointed to attend upon her, and gave him a commandment to Mordecai, notice, to know what it was, and why it was. Notice at this point, Esther doesn't know what's going on. She just knows that Mordecai is out there throwing a fit, a public you know, display of mourning, and she sends a messenger to know what it was and why it was. Notice verse 6. So Hatak went forth to Mordecai unto the street of the city, which was before the king's gate. And Mordecai told him of all that had happened unto him and of the sum of the money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the Jews to destroy them. Now notice, here's the request from Mordecai, verse 8. And he gave him a copy of the writing of the decree that was given to Shu, uh, at Shushan the, uh, to destroy them. Notice, to show it unto Esther and to declare it unto her and to charge her that she should go in unto the king to make supplication unto him and to make requests before him for the people. So we see the result of Haman's decree, and we see the request of Mordecai. But I'd like you to notice thirdly, just here in this introduction, notice the risk to Esther. Verse 9, And Hatak came and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Again, Esther spake unto Hatak and gave him commandment unto Mordecai all the king's servants, and all the people. So Mordecai makes this request, and he says, can you go speak to the king? Can you go before the king for the people? And Esther, you would think that that's just a, a valid request. you think that's easy. Can you just go talk to your husband? But there's a reason why Esther is apprehensive to do this. Verse 11, she says this. This is her response to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come unto the king into the inner court who is not called, there is one law of his to uh, put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter that he may live. But I have not been called to come in unto the king these 30 days. So we see that there is this law in the kingdom that says that you are not allowed to just walk into the presence of the king. You are not allowed to come into the presence of the king without being first called. And we don't know why this is. If I had to make an assumption, I would say it's a security measure. We already saw earlier in the book that there was an assassination attempt on the life of the king. And this must be some sort of a security measure where no one's allowed to come into the courthouse, come into his room without being called. And if they come in, they are to be put to death unless Unless the king decides to show mercy, they have to be called. And Esther says, I have not been called these 30 days. She says, you know, I could walk in there. I could walk in there, but, uh, you know, I will do that at much risk to my life. And people might say this. They might say, yeah, but you're his wife. He surely wouldn't do, you know, anything to you. And, you know, Esther would respond with, have you heard from Vashti lately? I mean, have, have you seen Vashti around? We haven't seen her in a few chapters here. We haven't heard from Vashti uh, since chapter 1 because she disobeyed the king. And this would be a rebellion, a rebellious act to go in before the king, 
without being called. This is the context in which we find the story. This is the request, and this is the risk, and this is the result of Haman's attack upon the Jews. Now, what I'd like to do this morning, I'd like to give you just three thoughts, and the first two, Lord willing, will go fairly quickly. The last one we'll take our time with. I want to give you two lessons and one takeaway from this chapter. Two lessons and one takeaway, and if you're able to write down notes, I'd encourage you to write these things down. On the back of your course of the week, there's a place for you to write down some things. Like you notice, verse number 12. And they told to Mordecai Esther's words. They explained to Mordecai, Mordecai, you know that Esther's not just allowed to walk into the king. You know that if she does so, she will do so at much risk to her own life. Notice the response back from Mordecai, verse 13. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. He says, don't, don't think that just because you're the queen, don't think that just because you live in the, in the, in, in, in the queen's, uh, in the king's house, that you're going to escape once people find out you're a Jew. And here's what you need to understand about the Medo-Persian Empire and with these laws, is that the, the laws of the Medo-Persian Empire were stronger than the king himself. If you remember, in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar and Belteshazzar could basically just decree laws from their mouth. They could say something, and it would be so. But the Medo-Persian Empire was inferior to that. And by the way, this is just a side note. As you study the empires uh, throughout the Bible, especially in in, in end times uh, uh, prophetic writings, you find that they get weaker and weaker, more and more inferior as they go along. And in the Medo-Persian Empire, the king were bound to the law. This is why the king was not, Darius was not allowed to just forgive Daniel. He had to throw him into the lion's den because he was bound by the law. And here we find that uh, we have this king that has this law. And if the law is passed and the Jews are to be put to death, he says, hey, don't think that the king's going to be able to save you in his house. Even the king is bound to this law. Then he says in verse 14, For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time. He says, Esther, if you decide to not say anything, if you decide to hold your peace, if you decide to not go to the king, to not make a request, to not confront him with what's going on, he says, for if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time. I want you to notice this phrase in verse 14, and this is the first lesson we see in this chapter. He says, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. It's interesting. Because Mordecai says to Esther, he says, look, God's will is going to get done. Now, we're not Calvinists. We don't believe that God forces people to do anything. But we do believe in an almighty, omnipotent God who's going to make sure his will is done, whether he has to. He's not going to force Esther to do anything. He's not a Calvinist, but he will use Esther. But if he can't use Esther, he will use somebody else. He says, for if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews. He says, from another place, but thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. He says, look, Esther, God is not limited to using you. But it is in your best interest to be used of God. He said, God is not limited uh, to 
use you, but it is in your best interest to be used. He says, he says, but thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. Here's point number one, or here's lesson number one, if you want to write it down. And it is this, no one is indispensable. No one is indispensable. You say, well, Esther the queen, she's pretty indispensable. Mordecai says, hey, if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. Now, don't misunderstand me when I say that no one is indispensable. When I say that no one is indispensable, that's all that I mean, is that nobody is indispensable. That is not to say that you are not important. Everyone is important. Everyone that's saved, everyone that's part of the plan of God, everybody that God wants to use, they are all important. They've all been placed in certain positions, in certain locations for such a time as this. You are important, but don't misunderstand your importance without and, and not realize that you're also uh, uh, dispensable. You say, what does that mean? Here's what that means. If you quit, if you leave, if you go, from this church, from our little kingdom here, if you choose to hold your peace and to not help and to not play your part and to not play your role, if you move away, if you get backslidden, if you go somewhere else, please understand this. We will move on without you. But we will never be the same. You are important, but you're not indispensable. In the New Testament, God would use this idea. He would use this illustration of a body. He would call a church a body. And he says that a church is filled with members. Church members are illustrated as body parts or body members. And the truth is this, that if I were to lose my hand or if I were to lose my foot or if I were to lose my eye, my body would move on without it. But it would never be the same. You are important. Esther was important to the work of God, and to the will of God. But Esther needed to understand, and Mordecai wanted to make sure she understood. Yes, Esther, you are important. Everyone is important, but no one is indispensable. God will do his work. God, Here's what he's saying. God wants to use us, but God is not limited to using us. And if God uses us, it is in our best interest, and it is our great opportunity, and it is our great honor to be used of God. See, we get this idea, we get this idea that I'm the only one that God can use. And if I leave that church, it's going to fall apart because you don't understand, I'm the biggest tither. Well, how, how do you know that? Well, I, you know, I'm the biggest this, and I'm the biggest that, and I work so much, and I volunteer so much, and I give so much, and I'm just so amazing, and I just actually sit there and do nothing, but I'm so great <laughs> that when I leave that church, you know, they're going to fall apart. I, you know, people leave this church, and in three months, that church is going to close down, and we're still here. Amen. Now, everyone's important. Everyone's important, but no one is indispensable. We get this idea. You don't have to turn there. First Kings chapter 19. In fact, you go to the book of Job if you would. Keep your place right there in Esther and go to Job chapter number one. Job is right after the book of Esther. First Kings 19. Here's what Elijah the prophet said during a low time in his life. The Bible says this, and he said, I have been very jealous. This is Elijah the prophet speaking to God. I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. Then he says this, he says, and I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Isn't it easy for us to get that attitude? When it comes to our positions and our stands, 
when it comes to the fights that we fight and the battles we have. It's easy for us to get this idea that says, well, only our church or only our few little friends of, uh, uh, in this movement. It's only us and I, even only I, am uh, I'm left uh, and they seek my life. But you know what God responded to Elijah? He says, yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel. All the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which has not kissed him. And here's all I want you to understand, and here's all you and I need to get, and here's what Esther needs to understand. You may be the queen. You may be given a position. You may be given a place. You may be given talent. You may be given power. You may be given authority. You may be given something that you can leverage for the cause of Christ that makes you important, but you're not indispensable. If thou altogether holdest thy peace, You know what God told the old IFB movement? I want you to preach against the sodomites. But if thou altogether holdest thy peace, I'll find someone else. And he did. First lesson is this, no one. No one is indispensable. You're not indispensable. This church is not indispensable. This church is important. It's not indispensable. This church shuts down. The work of God will continue. If I die, if I quit, this church can continue on without me. No one is indispensable. Here's the second truth for you. Go back to Esther chapter 4 if you would. Keep your finger right there in Job chapter 1. Lesson number one, no one is indispensable. Everyone is important, but no one is indispensable. God could use someone else. God wants to use you. God wants to use me. God wants to use us, but God is not limited to using us. And if God uses us, it is in our best interest. It is our great opportunity, our great honor to be used of God. But God can use someone else. You say, ah, you know, eh, uh, what about soul winning? Well, if you don't show up, God can use somebody else. But you know who's missing out? You. You know who will regret it in heaven? You. You know who will look lame for all of eternity? You. (laughs) Here's lesson number two. Not only is no one indispensable, but Haman reminds Esther that nothing is incidental. Look at verse 14. We've talked about this already, so I don't want to spend too much time on it, but notice verse 14. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And then he says this, he says this, and who knoweth? And we've talked about this, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. We've talked about the fact that there was an entire series of very unfortunate events that brought both Mordecai and Esther to this place, to this time. He says, who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Mordecai says to Esther, Mordecai says, Esther, it may be that your parents died. It may be that we were brought to this nation. It may be that you were taken from my arms and made the wife of, of, the, of the king, that you were brought to the kingdom, that God had a plan that he was orchestrating uh, in your life. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? See, the truth is this. No one is indispensable and nothing is incidental. Everything in your life, everything in your life, please listen to me, everything in your life, you say, was it done by God? No. We're not Calvinists. The Bible doesn't teach that. Some people have hurt you. Some people have wronged you. Some people have lied about you. Some people have stabbed you in the back. Say, did God do that? God did not do that. Okay, well, finish your statement. What were you going to say? Everything in your life was not done by God, but it was allowed by God. Everything in your life was filtered through God. You know that nothing in your life took God by surprise? Yeah. 
We are studying through the book of Job on Wednesday nights. You know this, but let's look at the verses real quickly. Job chapter 1, look at verse 9. Job chapter 1, verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for not? Saying, does, God fear, does Job fear you, God, for nothing? Has not thou made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? And thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance and increase in the land. And he says, but put forth thine hand and touch all that he hath and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, behold, all that he hath. Notice what it says there in verse 12. And the Lord said unto Satan, behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Notice that God, who killed Job's children? Satan did. Who caused Job's uh, 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 finances to decay? Satan did. But yet it was all filtered through God. God allowed it. Satan could not, in fact, God put bounds on it. He said, all that he hath is in thy power, only upon himself, put not forth thine hand. He says, do whatever you want to him, but I don't want you to touch him in chapter 1. That was round 1. Round 2, chapter 2, look at verse 4. And Satan answered the Lord and said, because Satan failed and Job has not cursed God, so he tries again. He says, skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath he will give for his life. He says, yeah, but you didn't let me touch his body. But put forth thine hand now and touch his bones and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. And I want you to notice that it is Satan who made Job sick. It is Satan who touched his body, but it was God who allowed it. And here's all I want you to understand. Everything in your life is not done by God, but it is filtered through God. You say, well, that doesn't make me feel any better. But please understand this. If God allowed it, then God has a plan for it. If God allowed it, then God can work it out. I didn't say God did it. I didn't say God uh, 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 wanted to, it to be done. I didn't say that, that God orchestrated it. I, I, and, and if it was sinful and if it was wrong, it definitely was not pleasing to God. But I can tell you this, that God, God we're not Calvinists. God does not stop man. There are uh, decisions we make and decisions that other people make that affect us. But if God allows it, then here's what we know, that God can work it out for good. That God can bring it out for good. That you can have a series of unfortunate events unfold in your life and God can use that to bring you to the place where he needs you to go. Go to Daniel chapter 3 if you would. Daniel chapter 3, if you're there in Job, you got Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. While you turn there, I'll just read to you these verses. They're very well-known verses. You, we've already talked about them in the series. Genesis 50 and verse 20. This is, of course, Joseph, who's very similar to Esther in the sense that he was taken captive, in the sense that he was done wrong, in the sense that he was brought to the kingdom for a very specific purpose. He says this, Genesis 50, verse 20, But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass it as, as it is this day, to save much people alive. Joseph looks at his brother and said, You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You meant it to hurt me, but God allowed it. God allowed it because God could see that he could work a plan through it. Romans 8.28 says this, And we know that all things work together for good. Amen. To them that love God. To them who are the called according to his purpose. So I said two lessons this morning. Lesson number one, no one is indispensable. You're important, but you're not indispensable. 
God wants to use you, but God could use someone else, and it's in your best interest. It's not in God's best interest. Please understand this. I show up to soul winning. I didn't do God any favors. I show up to Sunday night church. I didn't do God any favors. We think as we show up to Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, soul winning, and put money in an offering plate that, you know, we're some sort of all-star Christian, the Bible calls it your reasonable service. The Bible says you deserve to die and go to hell. God sent his son to pay for your sins, and it's the least you can do. It is our privilege. It is our honor. It is our opportunity. I don't have to get up here and preach. I get to get up here and preach. I get to have God use me and use you in his will, in his work. God doesn't have to use you. And if God uses you, it's in your best interest. And when God doesn't use you, that's bad for you. It's you missing out. No one is indispensable. And nothing is incidental. Everything that's happened in your life, good and bad, everything that's happened in your life was filtered through God. God knew about it and didn't catch God by surprise. And God knew that he could work it out for good in your life. Lesson number one, no one is indispensable. Lesson number two, nothing is incidental. Here's the takeaway. And we'll spend the rest of the sermon on this idea. Notice verse 15. And Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer. Remember, there's this going back and forth. Keep your place there in Daniel chapter 3, if you would. Go back to Esther chapter 4. Mordecai says to Esther, you need to go to the king. You need to make supplication for your people. Esther goes back and says, you don't understand. If I do that, I will do that at much risk to myself. Mordecai responds back saying, Esther, no one is indispensable and nothing is incidental. Who knoweth whether thou art brought to the kingdom for such a time as this? And then Esther, convinced by Mordecai, responds with these words. Verse 16. Go gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast you for me and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise and so will I go in unto the king which is not according to the law and then she makes these words. She says these words. She says, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. Esther says, if I perish, I perish. You know that no one is indispensable? And nothing is, indispen- is incidental? Here's a takeaway. Some things are worth dying for. Some things, some things are not guaranteed to us. See, this is, Esther didn't say this. Esther didn't say, I'm going to go into the king, and I know that God is going to work it out. That's not what she said. She said, in fact, the opposite. She said, I'm going to go into the king, and I'm not sure if God is going to work it out. I'm not sure if God is going to uh, allow this king to kill me. And if I perish, she says, if I perish, she said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to try it. Maybe God has brought me here. Maybe God has given me this position and this authority and this power. Maybe God expects me to leverage the talents and the treasures and the time that I have upon this earth to do his will and his work. She said, I'm going to try it. And if I perish, I perish. This is the same thing the three Hebrew children said to Nebuchadnezzar when they would not bow. Daniel chapter 3, if, you are, if you're there, look at verse 16, if you've got your place there. 
Daniel chapter 3 and verse 16 says this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar. I love, I love these verses. Nebuchadnezzar basically is making everybody bow to this idol. And Nebuchadnezzar found out that the three Hebrew children are not bowing, and he gives them a second chance. He says, maybe there was a misunderstanding here. We're going to play the music again, and we're going to give you another opportunity to bow. And they respond by saying, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. Here's what they said. We don't have to think about it. We don't have to orchestrate our words. We don't have to mince any words. We know what we believe, and we know what we're going to do. Verse 17, if it be so... If you throw us into the fiery furnace, our God, whom we serve, notice they didn't say he will, but they said, is able to deliver us. He said, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, here's what we believe about God. God is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. Then they said this in verse 18. But if not, here's what they say. God can deliver us, but God doesn't have to deliver us. God can do whatever God wants. They said, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. You know what the three Hebrew children were saying to Nebuchadnezzar? They were saying, we're going to do what God told us to do, and if I perish, I perish. You know what Peter was saying to the authorities there in Jerusalem when they said that we commanded you not to preach in this name and ye have filled Jerusalem with this doctrine? And Peter stood up and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. You know what he was saying? He was saying, if I perish, I perish. You know what Daniel was saying when he opened up the windows and, and, and the law had been passed that you're not allowed to pray and he opened up the windows and he prayed anyway as he had done a fourth time. You know what he was saying? He was saying, if I perish, I perish. Here's all I'm telling you. There are some things worth dying for. There are some battles worth dying on that hill. There are some things worth losing for, not succeeding for, failing for. There are some times that we are to do some things. Go to Leviticus if you would. Leviticus chapter 20. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus chapter to 20. There are some positions we take, some things we believe that are worth dying for. And like Esther, we should just say, you know what? God can deliver us if God wants to deliver us, but if God doesn't want to deliver us, we're going to do it anyway. And if I perish, I perish. You know, there's things we believe here at Verity Baptist Church. There's things that we've taken positions on that people will say to us, well, if you believe that, if you preach that, if you take that stand, you can't survive in this world, in this society. You can't pastor a growing church to, it's preaching that way. You can't live in this world. You're, you're going to get thrown into prison. You know, there's some things that we just need to say. If, if doing X, Y, and Z causes us to perish, causes us to fail, causes us to get in prison, causes us, God forbid, to be put to death. We just need to say, if I perish like Esther, I perish. Amen. Let me tell you something. If preaching against the homosexuals in 2021 causes us to perish, you know what? If I perish, I perish. Amen. Leviticus 20.13 says this, if a man also lie with mankind as he lieth with a woman, both of them have committed abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. Look, there are some battles that we avoid. There are some fights that are not worth fighting. I'm not going to sit there and argue with the manager at Walmart about a mask. But if I perish over this issue, I perish. 
We're going to continue to preach. And you say, what if they make laws against you? You know what? We ought to obey God rather than men. The Bible says, if a man also lie with mankind, he lies with a woman. They shall surely be put to death. That's what God thinks about it. That's how God feels about it. That's what we believe about it. That's what we're going to preach about it. And if I perish, I perish. Deuteronomy chapter 6, look at verse 7. You're there in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7. You say, oh, you're never going to build a church like that. We're not trying to build a church. Last I checked, God builds the church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know what we're trying to do? We're trying to be honoring to Christ. We're trying to preach the word of God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7, it says this, And thou shalt teach them diligently. The thou there is referring to parents, if you want to look at the context. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them. When thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. You know what the Bible says here? The Bible says that it is the job of the parent to teach the children when they are sitting in their house, when they're out and about, walking by the way, when thou liest down, when you go to bed and when you rise up, it's your job. And you know what? We take a position here that we are against the, uh, the, the school system, be it public or Christian. We're against it. You say, why? Because the Bible says that it is the job of the parent to teach their children, period. Now, look, you might be sitting here this morning. Maybe you're a single mom or you're in a situation where you don't have a choice. We understand that. We're not mad at you. We love you. We want to come alongside and help you. But if you get a choice, if you're able to, God says you got to homeschool your children. You say you can't preach like that. You're going to make people leave. You know what? If I perish, I perish. I'm just going to preach the word and tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says that it's your job, mom. It's your job, dad, to sit there and teach your children. It doesn't say, and you hire someone. He says, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. Go to Deuteronomy 22. Look at verse 5. You're there in Deuteronomy 6. Flip over to Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. I'm just telling you, you say, you're, you're going you're gonna to fail if you preach this way. Then we'll fail. The church will perish. Then let it perish. It's God's church. It's Christ's church. You say, you're really going to preach against the sodomites, the homosexuals? Yeah. You're really going to preach against the public school system? Yeah, the public school system that has brainwashed a society we live in. The reason we're dealing with all the crap we're dealing with in this society is because generation after generation of young people have been brainwashed by the government system. Yeah, you're offended that I'm preaching against that? Here's another one. You say, I'm already offended. Well, you better buckle up because I've got... A whole list full of stuff here. So you're, you're, you're not allowed to preach. You shouldn't preach these things. Things like what? Women wearing pants? Deuteronomy 22, look at verse 5. Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. The Bible says, The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man. You say, Nobody preaches this anymore. I know. Very few people do. You're going to destroy your church preaching like this on a Sunday morning. You know what? If I perish, I perish. The woman, the Bible says, shall not wear that which pertaineth unto man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. Now look, this verse is divided into two sections. Section number one says this, the woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto man. According to that phrase, there is a, a, a piece of clothing that pertains unto a man that God does not want a woman to wear. Now look, believe what you want about this. You've, you can't walk away from this verse not understanding that there is something that God says only men should wear and women should not. So answer me this. What is that? Is it a hat? Is it socks? 
Is it shoes? I mean, what is it? It's something. It's something. Let's look at the second part of the verse. Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. According to that phrase, there's something the woman should wear that a man should not. What is it? You know what the answer is. You say, well, of course, I was talking about a man putting on a dress. Of course it is. Like if I'm some six foot hairy guy walked in here in his wife's best Sunday dress, we'd all be appalled. We'd all say that's that is not, you know, you need to go somewhere else. And even in our society at this point, it's becoming more and more accepted. But men wearing women's clothing is still looked upon by normal people. They might not say it out loud. It's still looked upon as something that is wrong and something that is weird. But yet, a woman putting on a pair of britches is accepted now. But you know what? When women started wearing pants, it was the exact same thing. Now, look, I understand that people don't preach this anymore. People don't know this anymore. And because of that, I think we should always be very uh, 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 graceful with ladies. If I, I can't tell, you know, you're all sitting. If there's a lady in this room wearing a pair of pants, we're not mad at you. We love you. You probably never heard preaching like this. But I will tell you this. I'm not going to stop preaching it. And if I perish, I perish. The Bible says, look, the Bible says that there is an attire, there is a, 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 a clothing that women should not wear. The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto man. Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. I don't have the time to develop it. I've preached entire sermons on this in the past. But you go through and study this word breaches in the Bible, and you find that throughout the entire Bible, the only people that wear pants are men. And, and look, through, throughout society, the only people that wore pants are men. And let me let you in on a little secret. You say, well, I don't think it's that big of a deal for a, 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 a woman to put on a pair of pants. Yeah, but you know what? Back in the 1930s and the 1940s, when they started fighting this battle about women wearing pants, they didn't realize that the devil had an agenda called the LGBTQ movement. Because that cross-dressing movement, you know, before you had Baptist preachers preaching against women wearing pants, now we're preaching about, against men wearing dresses. And there is this, this, this blurring of the lines, this blurring of the sexes. Women have short hair, men have long hair. Look, God said that he made them male and female. God said that he wants them to be different, to look different. They have different roles, they have different uh, purposes in their life. God says, I want you to make them look different. Like, it's not that complicated. They're, they're, they're even trying to get rid of this, you know, in the very basic format. It used to be that people would, pre- you know, you'd preach this and people would get mad at you. And I'd be like, look, there's the bathroom sign. How can you tell which one's a male and a female? The one that has the skirt is the one that's a female. Now they got, you know, these trans vestite restrooms all over the place. It's an attack. Listen, listen, ladies, I'm not mad at you. You do what you want. And if my wife and I run into you at Target or wherever, you're wearing a pair of pants, we're not going to be mad at you. We're going to treat you with respect. We're going to love you. That's a decision you make between you and God. But let me tell you something. Every time you put on a pair of pants, you are furthering the LGBTQ movement. You are helping their agenda. That's how it began, and now we see how it is ending. Say, Pastor, I don't think you should be preaching about women wearing pants on a Sunday morning. You know what? If I perish, I perish. How about drinking alcohol? Proverbs 23. If you're there in the book of Esther, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs. Pastor, I don't think you should preach against alcohol because, you know, people drink. It's funny how people think. 
Pastor, you know, this church has like 180 people in here. Of course, there's somebody in this church that drinks alcohol, so I don't think you should preach against alcohol. You know how I think? Here's how I think. There's about 180 people in this room. There's for sure is somebody in this room that drinks alcohol, so I better preach against alcohol. Say, so, ah, well, you're going to, you know, upset people. They're going to leave. If I perish, I perish. Proverbs 23, verse 29. Notice what the Bible says. Who hath woe, who hath sorrow, who hath contentions, who hath babblings, who hath wounds without cause, who hath redness of eyes. They that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine. Verse 35. They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. The Bible, we skipped some of those verses there. The Bible talks about the fact that you're not going to have proper judgment. The Bible talks about the fact that you're going to seek strange women. The Bible talks about the fact, look, let me tell you something. And you, you can sit there and be mad at me and say, well, I don't think you should preach against that. I like drinking or whatever. But you know this is true. Nothing good comes from alcohol, period. It kills brain cells. It's poisonous. It makes you fat. It makes you ugly. There's nothing good about alcohol. You say, well, I like to have a cup of wine for, you know, the health purposes. Drink grape juice. There's there's nothing healthy. There's nothing healthy about uh, alcohol. It's poisonous. And look, you young people, you just stay away from it. The world lies to you and the world tries to tell you. You look at these billboards and you look at these commercials and the world tries to tell you that everybody, you know, everybody is drinking alcohol. By the way, let me say this. This is why you shouldn't be supporting the stinking Super Bowl next week. Because it's all a bunch of drinking fest. How you connect fat people drinking alcohol to fit people playing sports, I don't know. (laughs) But they try to connect these things as if they're the same. And you watch these Super Bowl ads... You know, let me just get off on a little rabbit's trail, preach against the Super Bowl for a minute. No Christian should watch the Super Bowl, period. I'm a Christian and I watch the Super Bowl. You need to get right with God. You say, what's wrong with uh, uh, watching the Super Bowl? How about, number one, you're supposed to be in church and giving God the, 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 the time, not watching a bunch of grown men play a little kid sport. How about, number two, it's like the biggest promoter of alcohol in our, in, in our nation. How about, number three, the half-naked women on the sideline dancing? Tell, you, you, you say, oh, no, I, I watch it for the sports. Those naked women don't affect me. Are you a queer? <laughs> Look, we got two problems here. Either you're lusting against those half-naked women, and if you're not, there's another problem. <laughs> say, well, what should I do? Don't watch it. Avoid it. Show up to church on Sunday night and be right with God. Amen. Say, I don't think he's preaching against the Super Bowl. Look, if I perish, I perish. You want us to leave? I don't want you to leave, but if you leave, you're not indispensable. I think you're important, but if you leave, we'll go on without you. He says, when shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. Here's the truth. There's nothing good that comes out of alcohol. And the media will show you that everybody who drinks alcohol is having fun, and they're fit, and they're nice, and they're young. And what they don't show you is the broken marriages. What they don't show you is the wife that's beaten. What they don't show you is the vomit and the piss at the bar. That's what they don't show you. There's nothing good about alcohol. Stay away from it. No Christian should be drinking alcohol. The Bible says, look not thou upon the wine. God says, I don't even want you looking at it. I don't think you should preach like this. You know what? If I perish, I perish. 
Go to Isaiah 47. You're there in Proverbs. You got Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 47. Isaiah 47, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah. Isaiah 47. I'm just, look, I'm just, every once in a while, it's good for me to just kind of recheck some things and remind you nothing's changed. We're still hateful. We're still angry. We're still a cult. I don't care if it's 2021. I don't care if Joe Biden's in the White House. Nothing's changed. These are, this is what we believe. And if I perish, you know what? I perish. If, the church, if, if, if I show up to church on a Sunday morning next week and half of you aren't here, I love you. We'll miss you. You're important, but you're not uh, indispensable. And there are some things that we just believe and we're just going to say, you know what? If it works, great. And if it doesn't, it's God's business. How about this one? Not showing your thigh. Isaiah 47, verse 1. Come down and sit in the dust, virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground. There is no throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For thou shalt no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstone and grind the meal. Notice this word. Uncover thy lock. Make bare the leg. Uncover the thigh. Pass over the rivers. He's talked about making bare the leg. And he specifically says, to un- he says, when you uncover your thigh, look at verse 3. Thy nakedness shall be uncovered. Yea, thy shame shall be seen. You know what the Bible, and this is just one example. We could look at other examples throughout the Bible. You know what the Bible calls exposing your thigh as nakedness? That's why in the Bible, God told the, 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 the priest, he says, if you're going to wear uh, short pants, he said, I, they need to cover the thigh. They need to go all the way down to the knee. This is why we teach the ladies here that you ought to wear skirts and dresses that, go, uh, uh, that cover your thigh. And you say, you know, what, what does that mean? That, a lot of times that means it needs to go past your knee. You know, it's funny to me how people, they, they, they find these rules in the Bible, and then instead of just trying to please God and love the Lord, they want to just get as close to sin as possible. Well, how short can my skirt be before pastor starts preaching against me? Well, is that why you're doing it? And you've got these little skirts, and you, you're constantly having to do this. <laughs> Miss Joanne walks by, and you're like, if you're doing this, it's too short. And if you're doing this, it probably does this when you sit down. Woo! And some of you, I'm not trying to offend you, you're not as thin as you used to be. And that thing writes up halfway past your, you're like, the, the, it's still the thigh on the backside. So I thought you weren't trying to offend us. Yeah, if I perish, I perish. Look, here's all, here's all I'm telling you. Do you believe what the Bible says or not? If your thigh's nakedness, you shouldn't be wearing short shorts. If your thigh is nakedness, you shouldn't be wearing mini skirts. If your thigh is nakedness, you shouldn't be wearing a bathing suit and a bikini. Look, let me tell you something. No Christian young man needs to be at a water park. No Christian young man needs to be at a, uh, at a beach or at a lake where there are ladies running around in their underwear. You say, oh, well, you know, that's a water park. Look, we don't believe in situational ethics. Nakedness is nakedness, whether you put a hole in the ground and call it a pool and, 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 and don't call it underwear, but call it a bikini, it's still nakedness. Nakedness is nakedness, whether it's at a pool. Nakedness is nakedness, whether you call it art. Nakedness is nakedness is nakedness. You say, I don't think you should preach this way. If I perish, I perish. Look, don't, don't, don't. And by the way, 
It doesn't say as long as you're 15 years old. Don't be putting short shorts on your little girls. The Bible talks about their, them losing their ability to blush. Oh, well, we just let our daughter wear a bikini till she's, till she's what? 13? It's too late by then. Let them expose their thigh. Let them wear mini skirts. Let them wear clothes that are modest. Look, if they shouldn't be wearing it when they're 16, they shouldn't be wearing it when they're 6. I, you know, I just don't think you should preach this way. Well, when it's your time to preach, you don't preach this way. Go to Jeremiah chapter 1. You're there in Isaiah 47. Jeremiah, just flip over to Jeremiah chapter 1. Look, here's all I'm telling you. There's some things. There's some things. Look, you say, you want the church to grow? Of course I want the church to grow. Do I want people to show up? Of course I want people to show up. But not at the expense of something. Some things are worth dying for. Some things are worth failing for. Some things we're just going to not get rid of. And you say, well, you're going to fail. Then, then, then let us fail. But at least we'll fail being right with God. And we won't fail because success is pleasing the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 1, verse 5, excuse me. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5. Here's what uh, uh, God said to Jeremiah. He says, before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee and ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. You know what? We're going to continue to preach against abortion. I don't care how popular, how accepted, we're going to preach. God said to the prophet, before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. Before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee and ordained thee a prophet. God looked down at Jeremiah and said, before, when you were in the womb, I already had a plan and a purpose for your life. So if you preach this way, people aren't going to like it. Well, you know what? If I perish, I perish. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. While you turn there, I'll read to you Matthew 28, 19. The Bible says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you all way, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Let me tell you something. Soul winning is something we do, and if I perish, I perish. Knocking doors and preaching the gospel, people tell me, ah, soul winning doesn't work. No, you know what? You don't work. Soul winning, you say, soul winning doesn't work. What do you mean by that? Because the purpose of soul winning is we go out, knock doors, and we give everybody the opportunity to be saved. You can't fail at that. If I knock on a door, I say, hey, do you know for sure if you die today or you're... When I won, the goal is to warn them now, look, I appreciate our soul winning efforts here at Ready Baptist Church. We have about 90 soul winners that go out every week, and I appreciate you, and I appreciate everything you do, and I think, you know, that it's great, and, 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 and I will say this, we have visitors every week that come from our soul winning efforts, and I'm thankful for that, and I'm happy for that, but let me tell you something, if it didn't work, we would still do it because God commanded it. Amen. You say, oh, well, I'm going to stop going soul winning. You, if I went soul winning, look, some of you need to just get this out of your head. If I went soul winning every week of my life and nobody ever got saved, I would still do it. Say, why? Because God said to, that's why. And because it's, the whole goal is to warn people. We get to win people, but the goal is to warn everyone. And if a visitor comes, we'll do it. If a visitor doesn't come, we'll do it. We have 180 people in this, in this uh, building, we'll do it. And if we have a, a 80 people in this uh, building, we'll still do it. It's not something that's up for debate. We're just going to do it. And if I perish, I perish. How about this one? Dating couples shouldn't touch. Dating couples shouldn't touch. 
dating couples shouldn't touch. Some of you parents, I'm, I'm going to keep saying it until some of you dads say amen. amen. Dating couples shouldn't touch. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things whereof he wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. You say, what is this, you know, is this in the context of dating? Well, look at verse 2. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. You know, the Bible says that dating couples shouldn't touch. That means they shouldn't hold hands. That means they shouldn't be putting their arm around each other. That means they dead sure shouldn't be kissing each other. Say, Pastor, this is kind of old-fashioned. I mean, you're really going to offend some people. If I perish, I perish. I'm going to stand up here and tell you what the Bible says. Dating couples shouldn't touch. You have the audacity to say, it's good for a man not to touch a woman in the context of dating. That's not talking about shaking somebody's hand, okay? But in a romantic context, it says, look, don't touch. You know, what if we can't help it? Then get married. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife. But you know what's better? Here's what's better for you to just control yourself. I've seen it so many times already in the 10 years I've, I've in ministry. I've seen it in this church and I've seen it in other churches. Well, we can't help it. We just, you know, to avoid fornication, Pastor. We have to get married. I know we've only known each other for three days, but we have to get married. <laughs> and I'm like, no, don't do it. No, wait. No, 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 we have to. The Bible says 1 Corinthians 7, chapter 2, verse 2. Fast forward a year later. No, you can't get divorced. Remember, yeah, I know he's crazy. I know she's stupid. I know this. I know that. You should have thought of that. (laughs) You know what's better? Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Dating couples shouldn't touch. I'm going to keep preaching that. I don't care what year it is. I don't care how out of fashion it gets. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, look at verse 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you. How about just separation in general? And you know what? Let me say this to dating couples. You shouldn't be touching. You shouldn't be driving in cars together by yourselves. You shouldn't be staying out all hours of the night. These are not things that are pleasing to the Lord. Separation. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. God wants us to live separated lives. How about just worldliness in general? First John 2 15, you have to turn there. The Bible says, Love not the world, neither things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, it's of the world. Here, here's what I'm telling you. We're going to continue to preach against worldly music. You can, you can have country music that you add the name of Jesus to and call it gospel if you want, but it's of the world. You can go ahead and have whatever kind of worldly music in your house, but you know what? At Verity Baptist Church, you know all the music that's played around here, all the music you hear coming out of these speakers, all the music you hear, it's all done by Baptists, independent fundamental Baptists. You say, why? Because the Bible says to love not the world, not the things that are in the world. If any man love the Father, the love of the Father is not in him. Love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, not some, not most, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. 
So we're just going to keep preaching against. We're just going to keep standing against worldliness in general and keep having separation. We're going to keep preaching against the world's music. We're going to keep preaching against electric guitars. We're going to keep preaching against dancing. We're never going to have a wedding at Verity Baptist Church where there's dancing. We are against dancing. I don't care what kind of dancing. Good night! It's a Baptist church! We're against dancing. We're against churches that look like rock concerts and feel like rock concerts and look like casinos. We're against going to casinos. I mean, we're just against all of it. We're going to keep preaching against it. We're going to keep preaching against divorce. We're going to keep preaching for the King James Bible. You say, if you keep preaching the King James Bible, you're never going to grow. Well, if I perish, I perish. You keep playing those old hymns, you're never going to grow. If we perish, we perish. You keep taking these strong stands. You keep preaching against the sodomite. You keep yelling and screaming and talking about Donald Trump. Look, you keep preaching against politicians. If I perish, I perish. There's some things that are worth dying for. No one is indispensable. And nothing is incidental. But some things are worth dying for. Some things are worth failing for. Some things are worth saying, you know what? God said it. We're just going to do it, whether it works out or not. Hey, Nebuchadnezzar, you know what we believe? We believe that our God is able to deliver us. And if he doesn't, I'll just perish. If I perish, Esther said, I perish. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this example of this very courageous young lady, Esther. Thank you for her father, Mordecai, who taught us a valuable lesson that no one is indispensable. Nothing is incidental. And some things are just worth dying for. Lord, I pray you'd help us to just realize, help us to realize there are some things that we're just not going to compromise on. No matter what the culture, how the culture changes, how society changes, there's some things we're just going to stick with it, and if we fail, if we don't succeed, if we perish, we're just going to perish. We're going to perish doing right. We're going to perish pleasing the Lord. Lord, I pray you'd help us to get to it. There's some parents in this room, and they need to get a hold of their kids, and they've got this, this attitude. Lord, help them to just take this attitude that says, if I perish, I perish. I'm going to raise these kids right for the glory of God. There's some marriages that need to just say, you know what? We're going to work this thing out till one of us perishes. And Lord, I just pray, I pray you'd help us. I pray you'd help us to have this tenacity of Esther. Lord, help me to have a boldness to say, if I perish, I perish. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.